Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. When Alexander saw the breadth of his domain, he wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer. Travis, I never know what to expect when we come to record this pathological life, and we almost need the dun-dun music from those great uh, New York police shows because we have the great Macedonian mystery this time. We, we do. So this is a flight of fancy for me. This is, this is delving into the history books. Uh, this is looking at the mystery surrounding Alexander the Great. So he was a man who was bestowed a kingdom and did amazing things with it, depending on which side of history you fall on. He died at a very young age of 32 years. Now, young age for us, we'll find context for that. Yes. Uh, but it's, it's quite a bit of a, a shock, really, when you realise he was 32 and achieved what he did. I look at this as sort of say, let's pull it apart and see what we can actually glean from this. What can we learn from it and, and, and how did he die at 32? There's a number of theories. To some, some make sense, some don't. So... I wanted to go and explore this. So if we look at it just straight from the history books, open up the book and it says, you know, in June 323 BCE. Before you go any further, I've always been puzzled by that accuracy with BC, BCE dates, yeah. because they didn't have a calendar saying 323 <laughs> BCE. They didn't know what they were counting down to. No, no. So this is all retrospective. Yes. So this is all, you know, as far as they could be, it could be, you know, 1,000 uh, whatever it is. So, yes, you're right. Uh, that, that BCE, and it used to be BC, and then it changed to BCE. So uh, choose your terminology. Okay. But that's right. That's right. Let's and again, when I'm using that terminology, remember 400 BCE is further back than 300 BCE. So you have to get the, the number right. Yeah. All right. So, yes, if you just look at the history books, what we get is that this man who was a great conqueror, Going across Asia, we'll explain a little bit more where he went, that he didn't die in battle. He actually died of a fever, plus or minus abdominal pain. The fever was lasted for about 10 days. Now, just before that, he went to a, a dinner party and drunk a lot. Straight up, you sort of look at that and go, well, okay, what does that mean? There is a context that needs to be put in, into this because medicine is one of those things that people think testing gives you the answer but it doesn't always and a lot of the time testing has to be taken into a, into consideration of the context of the history of the patient in this case we're going to use it as a history of where they were at what he did and then look at his symptoms and see if we can make sense of that in between like 500 BCE and 200 BCE, they had a population of about 100 to 150 million people worldwide. They had an annual growth rate of 0.4% from 10,000 BCE to the 1700s, 0.04%. So that's not much. No. Currently, we have a population, world population of 7.8 billion people with a growth rate of 1.05% per year. 
which equates to around 81 million people per year. Wow. What that means is the percentage growth that we have now is almost equivalent to the world population in, in between 500 and 200 BCE. So that's quite a remarkable change. One of the things that changed from them is childbirth rates are significantly different now to when they were. So maternal death rates, so giving birth, back then was estimated at about deaths, was around 25 per thousand, which doesn't make any meaning until you put it into context now. We measure in 2017, we have deaths, maternal deaths during childbirth, of six per hundred thousand. So there's over 400 times more deaths of women giving birth back then than now. Not only that, when we look at childhood, one in four children would die in their first year. Half of children would die before they, meet, they got to adulthood. So the life expectancy, once you got to 15 years of age, for women was 38 years. And for males, it was 41 years. What people say is, oh, people just live longer now than they do. And it's when we start to get to terms that we think about it, it's a bit different. We're looking at the difference between lifespan and life expectancy. And life expectancy was certainly shorter back then. But lifespan, people could still live to the ages we live. It's just that it was a lot harder. So there's, there's studies, some studies that show that uh, people live up to you know, 70 years plus or minus 13. But remember, those studies tend to be a little bit of a biased population because people who live that long tend to have a bit more money. But it showed that they could live that long. But why was expectancy so low? Well, diseases would come along. There were diseases of malaria, plague, smallpox, cholera, TB, even syphilis. These were significant diseases that people died from. The other thing that we don't have that they had is violence. They died a lot. There was wars and even just normal violence around in the, in the community. And when you have violence, you tend to have punctured skin. And as we learn later in history, uh, that's how uh, infection happens. And so what did they do back then when you've taken some sort of puncture because of violence? It, it would depend on the era that you're in. Some of them would use wine and vinegar, which I can only imagine if vinegar would, be a, would, would sting because it's an acid. Uh, so it would depend, but also depends on the culture that you're in. So once you started to get sick... Uh, if it got extensive, then there was no treatment at the time. I, I mean, even just looking at the military, they, they were saying that the estimated rates of mortality in wars uh, at the time, like, you know, if you got an arrow shot, you 42% uh, people died. With that, a slingshot wound, 67% people died. A spear wound was 80%. And, you know, if you got hit by a sword, it was 100%. So, the wars that were happening, people would be marching for long, long periods of time, but an intense day of battle was, was a significant event that a lot of people died from. When we look at this, we see Alexander was the king. So he wasn't the run-of-the-mill person that you know, bumped his knee. He would have had access to philosophers, physicians, the best of the time. He's, he was well-educated. They would have come and seen him. So what was their knowledge at the time? Well, most civilizations at the time have 
you know, initially believe illnesses associated with divine retribution or punishment. Now, Greece and Macedonia wasn't at that point in time. They had wonderful, great thinkers like Plato and Hippocrates and, and Aristotle. And they were the ones who developed the four humours or understood the four humours of air, water, fire and earth. Uh, and that play then sort of moved into the understanding of vital fluids, which they put down to blood, phlegm, yellow bile and black bile. So they believed that all the elements, when they were in harmony, created what they called eucrasia. So wellness. As soon as those vital fluids got out of balance it was called dyscrasia and you'd get illness so this is where the black bile or the yellow bile you were unwell because your your vital fluids were were mixed by another way that knowledge extended all the way up until the 1700s until we started to get anatomy people realizing oh no it can be unwell they even had belief that a sneeze was a expulsion of one's vital forces so they would stop themselves from sneezing uh, at all costs uh, hysteria uh, the the word comes from greek uterus and it was considered to be bouncing around the body which would cause women to get upset and her- have erratic behavior uh, men wasn't afraid they, they thought the male orgasm was loss of primal power didn't plato also think that the penis was an independent creature, living heedless of reasoning, I think was the term. <laughs> he, he did, he did. And whilst they seem odd to us, this is the best thinkers of the time. These are, these are people coming to terms with uh, the, the knowledge uh, and, and trying to figure a way. And, you know, yes, he, he did. It was the, the other one to, that was of real interest, particularly for Alexander, was alcohol. Alcohol, the... the philosophers and physicians said in moderation is good but what we're seeing is in the macedonian greek and even you know later the roman culture alcohol was a big problem uh, and that come into to play you know it, it was estimated that uh, the average typical ancient roman drank 380 liters of uh, alcohol per year which is over a liter a day now it doesn't quite work like that because you'll drink more at certain times but that's a significant. That's just the average Roman. So that is a lot. That that is a lot. That is a lot. But that is the context where we find Alexander. That is where he gets sick. That is the knowledge of the day, and that will take us to where we need to go. I'm on the edge of my seat. I can't wait for this to be resolved. Will it be resolved by the end of the episode? It will be resolved. Whether it's right or not is a matter of conjecture. Dun dun. If you've got scars, strip and show them to me. I'll show you mine. There isn't one part of my body, the front at least, that doesn't bear a wound. My body's covered in scars from every weapon you can think of. Swords, arrows, stones, clubs. All for the sake of your lives, your glory and your wealth. And yet here I still am, leading you as conqueror of land and sea, rivers, mountains and the plains. Let's continue unravelling the Macedonian mystery which we're doing here. Travis, where do we go to next in this story? So we need to look at Alexander. 
He's referred to as Alexander the Great. He is one of the most notable figures in history. But there is an important point to note, and, and uh, Lord Acton said, uh, said it best in the 19th century. Great men are almost always bad men. So when we look at Alexander, he got the great title, so to speak, years later after his death. It is debatable, but it's believed to be given him by the Romans. Now, if the Romans admire a man, you need to put into context what the Romans actually admired about him. And there was a a person by the name who was an enemy of ancient Rome, Calgacus, who said a quote about the Romans. These plunderers of the world, after exhausting the land by their devastations, are rifling the ocean. Stimulated by avarice, if their enemy be rich, by ambition, if poor, unsatiated by the East and by the West, to ravage, to slaughter, to usurp under false titles they call empire, and where they make a desert... They call it peace. Romans admire a person. You need to put that into context. What are they admiring? Alexander is not a benevolent ruler. He least either displaced or killed hundreds of thousands of millions of people. He did name 70 cities after himself and one after his horse. But let's put him into context. He was bestowed a kingdom by his father. His father was King Philip II of Macedonia, considered one of the world's best military commanders even before Alexander, and now he is probably in the shadow of his son. He conquered Greek city-states when Macedonia was only small, and he fought alongside of his troops till the end of his life. Uh, He was a a man who was definitely in the field. By the end of his life, he had one eye, uh, a broken shoulder, and walked with a, a crippled leg. And that's because a lance or a spear had literally gone through from one side to the other. They've even got uh, evidence today of his body where it's been punctured through a, a big spear that's gone through. And it's quite incredible. But he, was, he would limp around. Uh, he fought almost every year of his reign. Unfortunately, he died possibly at the hand of either the Persians or his own wife, Alexander's mother, who was... Is that Myrtle? She's known mainly to history as Olympias. Hmm. And it's a Kennedy assassination. It's it's one of those ones where who did it? The the person who did it, his name was Pausanias. He was a bodyguard person and came up to Philip when he was walking in a theatre and, and stabbed him in the, in the ribs, uh, ran away, but then he was killed by the bodyguards. But then the Olympus, uh, Alexander's mother, was apparently associated with it because then Alexander gets the kingship. But Olympus kills his other wife and child. It's amazing to see, to, to read about, and it's real life. It's <laughs> incredible. But that brings us to Olympus. So she was the daughter of a king from the state of uh, Epirus, and she was an arranged marriage with Philip, and this was to, to keep the peace between the states. She was a follower of Dionysus. Uh, that was the god of wine and winemaking and grape cultivations, fertility, uh, ritual madness, which I'm, I'm not exactly sure what that is, but <laughs> she would apparently sleep with snakes and... Before Alexander was conceived, uh, she had a dream that a thunderbolt hit her womb from from the gods and that a, a great man would be born. Not only that, Alexander, when he was born, was associated with, with deities. He, he was told that he was the lineage of Achilles. This is a man who was 
brought up, son of a king, lineage to the gods. I think I've been doing parenting wrong because I've been told not to overly praise your children. This was a man who was built to do what he did. And in, in a position to do this, like it's remarkable to see, you know, Plutarch writes, uh, but he, again, all of this history needs to be taken with a grain of salt because much of it can be hundreds of years later. Plutarch said that Philip and Alexander had a, an affectionate but competitive relationship. You know, at the age of 16, when Philip was away, he was in charge of a battle and took on Thracians and won. And this is where he named his first city, named Alexandropolis. Wow. So I'm not sure how many variations of city names you can put in, in there. but That's got Marvel comics <laughs> written all over it. It, it does, it yeah. does. Philip also made sure his son, Alexander, was cultured. So he even got Aristotle as a, a tutor. Wow. But we had a note with regards to um, alcoholism and drunkenness. He was known, had a reputation for intoxication and drunkenness. Even Macedonians by Greek standards were considered barbaric because they drank undiluted wine. So they were obviously heavy drinkers compared to the Greeks. Oh, Alexander was also known as, as bad-tempered and ended up killing one of his own friends in a drunken rage one time. Looking at the context again, Dionysus is a god of wine. Your mum is a follower. Therefore, drinking was considered getting close to Dionysus, close to God. Macedonians also interpreted drunkenness and intoxication as a sign of masculinity. So this is a powerful drug for the Macedonians. One story I have to tell, so this is my own digression though. One of Alexander's advisors when they were in the city of uh, Susa, of, of Persia, conquering again, he was, Calcanus uh, was 73 years old, but felt he was mortally ill. But he didn't want a prolonged death. So he decided, I'm going to commit suicide by self-immolation, putting yourself on fire. Alexander couldn't convince him otherwise, and he did it. To honour his memory, Alexander organised a drinking contest. Oh, goodness. <laughs> and that drinking contest, there was one rule. Whoever drinks the most wind. The winner would win a talent of gold which was approximately 26 kilograms of gold. So a whole bunch of people, locals and soldiers, were organised for this drinking contest. And in this drinking contest, the winner's name was Promachius. He drank 13 litres of undiluted wine. Problem was, there was 41 contestants. 35 died at the contest, and the remaining, including Promachius, died the next few days later from alcohol poisoning. It boggles the mind. It does. Wow, look, before Hollywood gobbles you up as a scriptwriter, let's pause because now with this background, I want to bring this home to understand how Alexander the Great died as far as we know. And luckily, we're not watching this in a theatre like Philip. Um, we can actually, in the safety of wherever we might be, uh, just wait. In a few seconds' time, we'll continue with the last part of this story. Afraid? Of course you have fears. We all have fears. Because no one has ever gone this far before. And now we are weeks from the encircling ocean, our route home. We'll build a fleet of ships and sail all the way back down the Nile to Egypt. And from Alexandria, we shall be home within weeks. There to be reunited with our loved ones, to share our great treasures and tales of Asia and to enjoy our imperishable glory to the ends of time. We're ready to understand the mystery of the death 
of Alexander the Great. I'm hope we're all counting on you to bring your best pathology to this task, Travis. Looking as close as we can at the primary sources, Alexander, at the end of May, start of June, goes to dinner with a close friend. They end up drinking all day. And at the end, he complained that he didn't feel well. The Greek historian, Arian, writing 300 to 400 years later, says he had a fever over the time of 10 days. I have difficulty finding anything more than that. There are reports that he had abdominal pain all the ways to excruciating. So we need to keep that in mind. Does have it, doesn't have it, we'll put that into context. But the most common five, I'll put it to five, there's usually four, but I'll put a fifth one because it's important to discuss. Diagnoses for Alexander's death. First one is malaria. Second one, typhoid. Third is acute pancreatitis. And the fourth is poisoning. The last is Guillain-Barre, which we'll discuss a little bit. There's three that I think are very possible. I'll start with the last two with regards to poisoning. Now, in 2014, there was a, in the Journal of Clinical Toxicology, a, a Dr. Leo uh, Shep uh, wrote that there was a poison that could fit the description. It was called white hellbore, veratrum album. And that fits the symptoms of uh, epigastric pain and muscular weakness. Again, these symptoms seem to have been all I have on the, the primary source is a fever, feeling unwell. There's no nausea and vomiting discussed. That doesn't mean it wasn't there. But I would have thought that if a king is really unwell, someone probably would have written down exactly those descriptions. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's some people who got poisoned with this in, in Europe in, in 2010. They were unwell within 30 minutes. They had these symptoms, but they recovered. Poisoning is great for conspiracies, and they genuinely happen at times. In this instance, it doesn't seem it came about until several years later after his death that, oh, he could have been poisoned. So it's one of those ones I said, yes, it's possible. Is it, is it plausible? I, I don't think so. The other one is the, the Gillian Barre, and that, that's one that's, that's come up recently. So that was Dr. Catherine Hall from Dunedin who said, oh, it could have been that. One of the suggestions that happened, which I, again, didn't see from the primary sources, is Alexander had a propaganda arm that would travel with him. And and because, effectively, he wanted to be known as a deity, he would have people writing about him, the, the glorious exploits that he did. There is suggestions when he died, his body didn't decompose, even though it was in the desert for six days. That, for me doesn't sound right. But Dr. Hall has suggested that could have happened because he had Guillain-Barre, meaning that he actually wasn't dead at that time. He was paralyzed. Guillain-Barre, it's a bit of a mouthful. So it's an acute inflammatory demyelinating disorder. So effectively what it means is uh, our nerves have myelin around them that just help conduct from your finger to your brain, makes it move quicker, the signal. Something happens, it's normally an infection, you produce an antibody that closely mimics that myelin and then your body starts attacking it. Campylobacter is a, is a common cause, but we've got other ones like CMV, EBV or mycoplasma pneumonia. If you get an infection there, you can get what we call Guillain-Barre and that means it's autoimmune, it attacks your nerves and it's we call an ascending paralysis. So it ranges from you know extremities up. It can be really dangerous, but the infection happens a few weeks before you get those symptoms. What we know from Alexander is that he was having symptoms with fever and died with that in 10 days. Normally, Guillain-Barre, one to three weeks. So it's, again, it's less like, exactly, it's unlikely. So that brings us to the, the three top ones. 
For me, let's look at acute pancreatitis. It's an inflamed pancreas. Now, the pancreas does endocrine and exocrine functions, means it helps digestion and it helps blood sugar regulation. A common cause for this is alcohol. The difference is normally you can get fever with it, but normally it's really, really bad abdominal pain that radiates through to the back. Again, it may be there. He may have experienced that. And that's why I'm sitting there just going, I'm not quite sure. Mm. But the main emphasis seems to be fever. Could have you had it? Yes. Does he have, you know, heavy drinking? Yes. He fits all the criteria for it, but there's no other signs. You'd think there'd be reference to that, wouldn't you? Yeah, you the back pain and then... Intense pain, again, nausea and vomiting. Yeah. They're non-specific signs, but... Seems like a suspicious omission yeah, from the it, record. All yeah. we're working with is fever. We then have the last two, and we look at malaria and typhoid. Malaria can occur in, in Iraq. Uh, they have a malarial season between April and November, this occurred in May, June. So yeah, it, it's possible. It can be pathogenic. You have episodic fevers, which again suggests that's, that fits. There's no other signs there. He didn't look like he had, like became really pale or he didn't have like jaundice, which sometimes, you know, yellow eyes going to yep. yellow skin. So we don't have other features of that, but it could still be malaria. Yes. It, it can fit, and they could get it. There's no reference of him drinking gin and tonic, is there, <laughs> to have quinine? No, no. Right. And then that brings us to the last one, typhoid. So salmonella typhi, again, people get fevers. Certainly it could be this. There's almost no way to know. But I put these last two together because we put it into one category, and I, I think this is what Alexander died of, is sepsis. He died of infection, a fulminant infection that was going on. Everything else is kind of academic at that point. Is it malaria or is it typhoid? Well, that's really useful for us now because we can treat it differently. Back then... It was the same <laughs> prognosis, wasn't it? Exactly. The best definition I've come across is reduced organ function due to an infection. And what we look at from there is we say he most likely, he was 32, got these fulminant fevers, maybe or may not be episodic, Abdominal pain, plus or minus, yes. Could it be acute pancreatitis? Absolutely. Could it be typhoid and malaria? Yes, it could be. But it could also just be, a, a, you know, appendicitis that, you know, perforated. It can also, these are abdom abdominal symptoms and all we're working from is fever. But I would think using what, what we talk about in, in medicine is, you know, when you hear hoofs on a street, you look for horses. You don't look for zebras. And, you know, it's much more common to have a rare presentation of a common disease than it is to have a common presentation of a rare disease. He could have cut his finger and started getting an infection from there. No antibiotics at that point in time. But what can we learn from this? And what we learn is the importance of a relevant clinical history. In this instance, we could actually sort this out very quickly if a 32-year-old came in today into the emergency department. You have the top three differential diagnoses. If we look at acute pancreatitis, we could do a lipase because lipase is much more specific for pancreas than amylase. Amylase, when you look at it, it's also in salivary tissue. So when we look at that, we would do a lipase test really useful to do. And if it's really elevated, they're having injuries. It's important to know the test. If we look at malaria to these days, we could do thick and thin films. But if the parasite load is low, 
we can still miss that on those. And so we have ICT that tests the antigen. Return travellers from places where malaria is endemic is important for you to know that. And even things like typhoid, you know, it would have been doing a blood culture on the patient. But again, blood cultures still take 24 to 48 hours to flag positive. It's about knowing the test. Even things like patients who are septic, 40 to 70% of them will have a positive blood culture, which means that a lot of them won't. It doesn't mean they're not septic. It means just the test doesn't pick it up. So it's about knowing the deficiencies of the test, knowing about the positives of the test. From my money, I'd put it on Alexander died from sepsis. Everything else, not quite sure. What is it, typhoid? Could have been. Was it malaria? Could have been. But it could have been just... Anything else, even E. coli or uh, you know a urosepsis or you know, appendicitis type rupture, but that's where I'd be going. Sepsis. There you go, Dr. Travis Brown. Thank you. And as I would say, perhaps back in the day, Mysterium Solvator. This pathological life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references, and learning objectives, when applicable, can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au and you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. <laughs>